completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Welcome to Unbalanced Views, a mostly American history podcast where I, Brian Bradyhoff, a former history instructor, try to teach some history to my ignorant friend, Mike Ajarinos. Welcome to episode 10. We are discussing the great Chinatown murder mystery, and we're going to pick up right where we left off, talking about Chinese exclusion and anti-Chinese sentiment in the United States around the turn of the 20th century. So the project of Chinese exclusion um, helped to fuel the transformation of what were initially ethnically diverse communities like Chinatown into the vice-ridden spaces of ethnic danger, particularly for white women, in the minds of the middle class, white sort of newspaper reading public. After all, since at least the Page Act of 1875, Chinese women were excluded from immigration. Right. This included, of course, wives and daughters of immigrant laborers. So the Chinese immigrant population that did come in were increasingly visibly male, right? Like there just weren't any women. More and more men came in and no women came in. Right. So Chinatowns become kind of known as these sort of bachelor spaces. At the same time, women, especially bourgeois white women, were experiencing kind of an increased social mobility. The temperance movement, the settlement house movement, and women's suffrage movements were all blossoming at this time. Now, I know that this took place in Eng- the, the story about say took place in England, but Mary Poppins, for example, was set sure. in 1910. Uh-huh. So you think about Mrs. Banks and how she really kind of captures this dual reality, right? In the movie, she's like marching for women's suffrage, right? She's very proud, like she's got her votes for women. Do you remember? I vaguely remember that, but better example might be Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, I like the Mary Poppins example because she comes home after a, a women's suffrage rally and she's all fired up <laughs> and she's got the house. She's like marching around the house with her housekeepers and they're singing about like votes for women. <laughs> and then her husband comes home and she immediately becomes subservient. Oh, I like, love instantly. it. That's great. I got to so, watch it again. I, I, I haven't seen that since I was a kid. I don't think. But that's the point is there, there, there's a kind of dual there's a kind of dual reality that that shows. You know, what I mean, it sort of shows this kind of for bourgeois women like. She became immediately subservient at home, even though she had the means to have housekeepers and a cook <laughs> and a nanny, right? Like, it didn't matter. Like, she immediately became the sort of, sort of second-class citizen in her own house. Anyway, this increased uh, social mobility created a growing anxiety about the safety of women and about protecting white womanhood, especially middle-class white womanhood, which was seen as somehow more worthy and virtuous by the bourgeoisie, of course. Gotta protect your white ladies. Keep in mind also, <laughs> that's exactly right. Keep in mind also, um, it was only in 1888 that Jack the Ripper's murders okay. were like luridly used to create a kind of sexual panic that raised concerns about mixing of working class men and women and respectable middle class men and women. Yep. Say what you will about Jack the Ripper, the, the actual events, the way that the press and popular writers of the time dealt with it was to really deal with this idea of a kind of um, a moral panic and to try and put up barriers between the bourgeois, you know, the, the bourgeoisie yep. and the working class neighborhoods that Jack the Ripper was killing women. You know what I mean? Yep. So Elsie Siegel was a solidly middle class woman. Her grandfather, Franz Siegel, was a union general in the Civil War. And in 1907, five years after 25,000 people showed up to mourn his death, New York honored his legacy with a statue in Riverside Park, the same park as Grant's tomb. She was a bigwig. She was a bigwig. He's a bigwig. Yeah. The press alleged that Elsie's mother had introduced her at a young age to Protestant missionary work among the city's Chinese residents. According to the press, Elsie's father, Paul, did not approve of the work and urged his wife to stop, but to no avail. This allowed the press to exploit the story as a kind of tragedy because Elsie continued the selfless task of trying to convert and educate the heathen Chinese. Rumors swirled that Chinese men 
frequently visited the seagull house. And some neighbors even complained that the seagulls allowed them to stay as boarders, though this was contradicted by Elsie's cousin, Mabel. Newspapers claimed that Elsie and her mother had met Leon Ling four years prior to Elsie's death when he operated a Chinese restaurant a few blocks from the seagull's then residence on 188th Street. Neighbors told reporters that Siegel was frequently seen in company of young men of, quote, those nationalities, end quote, meaning the Chinese and Japanese. There it is. Leon Ling, according to several newspaper accounts, fucked. Was, one of the, <laughs> was one of the frequent visitors and had even accompanied the mother and daughter on several trips to Chinatown, including at least one to the infamous Chinese theater on Doyer Street which had a reputation for violence among the various fraternal organizations known as Tongs. Readers who learned these details would have been primed to kind of imagine that the Seagulls were in unnecessary danger because of their relationship with Leon Ling, right? So like, you know, middle-class readers would have read this story about Ling taking them to Chinatown. And even without knowing anything else, they would have sort of read this and immediately been like, Oh, they've put themselves in danger. You know what I mean? They've, they've taken themselves to a dangerous place with a dangerous man, <laughs> right? Regardless of the facts, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. right. Okay. Of course. Furthermore, when the police and press learned of the 35 love letters written by Elsie to Leon Ling, they were both convinced that the two were engaged in a scandalous love affair. Okay. First, it meant that Elsie had blurred the student teacher lines that permitted their interaction in the first place. Second, it presented a racial problem because Elsie had treated Ling, as one reporter said, quote, as a white man, right. treating him as a social equal, which undermined the proper social relations yes. of the day. End quote. Yes. Her letters also presented problems regarding her status because in them, she expressed the kind of sentimentality that was only proper between couples who were engaged or married. So to the police and the press, Elsie Siegel per, uh, behaved less like a virtuous member of the middle class and more like a brash urban working class woman who was a target of reform, not a reformer. The revelation of this illicit relationship fueled panic in the newspapers throughout the country as people questioned whether white women could be trusted to work as missionaries with Chinese men or even whether the Chinese were even capable of conversion. Newspaper cartoonists re released a flood of caricatures of hypersexualized Chinese stereotypes in all manner of like threatening poses around respectable looking women for many newspaper editorialists, even if some Chinese men were not insincere or sexually barbaric, the risk to white womanhood was far too great to continue allowing white women to work in the missions as reporters and police tried to determine Elsie's movements in the days leading up to her disappearance. They discovered more troubling news. Siegel was seen in the company of Chu Gain, manager of the Port Arthur restaurant, a favorite hotspot for middle-class tourists to Chinatown. Police searched Gain's residence and discovered a similar stack of love letters written by Elsie Siegel. Wait, wait, Police wait, question Gain. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> Where's this guy Gain being seen with? Chu Gain, mm -hmm. who is the manager of a popular restaurant in Chinatown. Okay. The police find out that Elsie Siegel has been seen in his company. Okay. They go and when and then they go and they search his apartment or his house, yeah his apartment. Okay. And they discover love letters written by Elsie Siegel. Find love letters. Okay. Police question Gain. Little hooker. And he admitted that he had quote known Miss Siegel intimately end quote. Uh huh. I'm sure a bunch of guys did. I'm getting that picture. The press reported that Leon Ling had threatened Gain a few months earlier out of jealousy. And then, a few weeks before Siegel's body was discovered, Gain received an anonymous letter warning him to end his intentions toward her. Uh-oh. Yeah. With this new information, or while this, I'm sorry, while this new information allowed the police to conclude that Leon Ling had murdered Elsie Siegel out of jealousy, it was nonetheless troubling uh, as a revelation for the press. After all, this does not exactly jive with their portrayal of Elsie as the virtuous missionary, naively trying to save souls in a dangerous environment. Now, the she press, the, huh? She gotten. It sounds like she's promiscuous. Well, got into a little love triangle. One got real jealous and whacked her. In fairness, her use of the term—I mean, his use of the term—intimately 
might not mean the same thing that we would mean today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to really get into this, but I will say that mm-hmm. Gain does spend a good deal of time after this trying to defend her honor in the paper, like in the newspapers, saying like, you know, no, 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 it wasn't like that. Like, I got you, you know. So you mean he might have just known her well? Yeah. Well, yes. He that. But he got love letters from her. We're we're going to talk about those love letters because again, they're called love letters in the press. I got you. Okay. So I got you again. Um, and I'm not saying they're not, but do we have said love letters? Um, that is a really good question. I have seen a couple a copies of a couple of things. Um, a couple of little you know, little pieces, but I know to my knowledge, we don't have all of them. We have a few little snippets from what I know, but again, a lot of this story that I'm reading to you or that, you know, that I'm doing here, it is important to hear what I say specifically because it's like the press reported this thing. The press, of course, trust me. When anyone says the press reported, my ears go up. (laughs) Well, and so that's the thing. So like, this is again, this is not to say that it's not true, but it is to say that it's not true. The, when the police <laughs> stack of letters, the press are the ones who refer to them or the police refer to them as love letters and the press goes with that. But like love letters can mean a whole variety of things mm-hmm. and doesn't necessarily mean that she's sleeping around or whatever. Sure. It also could mean that who knows um, we like we can't know. We can't know the degree right. to which she was involved with either of these men. This is also not to say that the press is necessarily making things up, but also, you know, there's a lot of newspapers trying to sell copies. So you sure. know, this, this is, you know, again, the, kind of the problem with having a one of the problems with having a profit based uh, system for journalism, you know, is that you are incentivized to get the clicks to sell the papers with the most sensationalist new headline with the most sensationalist you know way to tell a story you, you know what i mean like yep. where you can claim you can later on claim you're telling you're telling the truth but the way you're telling the truth is in such a way as to mm-hmm. make people tune in yep. i mean we know that today we know yeah. that that is a problem but it's no different than to, to some degree uh earlier than this period a little bit less so here where most of the newspapers are still pretending that they're being um fair and balanced um but uh, you know uh, if you go back just a little bit earlier than this the newspapers were pretty blatantly like partisan and mm-hmm. you knew who they represented and i think that there's actually something refreshing about that if you at least know up front the the, the perspective you're getting you're able to yes well better better it, filter it, out the yeah. it was big time it's a massive difference because it's now it's more like polluting propaganda and it's trickery. That was the same thing then. That's how. Well, I mean, no, it, not if you know what you're getting. Oh yeah, if you know what you're getting, it's different. You know what you're getting. Stop. But people today will tune into TV and see something and be like, "Oh, that's fact because it's on the news." Right. Not knowing what what the news channel sure is connected to. Sure, you know? sure, sure, sure. Um, every that's why everybody should have to read uh, Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. Uh, everybody, every it should be required reading once you get to high school. Um, right, right. I mean, because the way he the way he breaks down the way that the news, the the sort of respectable news sells ideas to the public. I, I mean, I think is is just required. Anyway, it's required reading. I'm sorry I didn't discover it earlier than I did. Um, the press, though, okay. So the the press now learning about Chu Gain, they were actually a bit hesitant to report this new information about him, at least at first not wanting to tarnish the good family name of a Civil War hero, or at least his family. And they wanted to better understand how a respectable girl could succumb, as they saw it, to coquettish behaviors. (laughs) I uh, I love it. uh, I love that term, by the way. Yeah, coquettish is great. Captain Carey uh, theorized that Ling met Siegel in her neighborhood, and he, quote, induced her into his oriental den on 8th Avenue, end quote. Carrie further suggested that Ling visited Elsie when her father was away and also frequently hid in waiting for her at the St. Nicholas and 181st uh, Street subway station, emerging as if by surprise to ride downtown with her on the subway. Carrie and Elsie's friends and family all believed that she had been tricked into his home and that she had never been there before the fateful day of her, of her murder. But even this description called into question her moral character. After all, if it was true, she hid Ling's visits from her father. 
which is not exactly virtuous behavior. Now, New York didn't have any anti-miscegenation laws, and interracial marriage or cohabitation was written about occasionally in the press. Like, it wasn't thoroughly hidden or anything. Mm -hmm. However, it was usually treated as the unfortunate kind of corollary to rapid industrialization and uh, swelling immigrant populations. In other words, white women who married Chinese men were seen as driven to that choice out of economic deprivation. Right. Right. Not by choice. It was still considered socially deviant and definitely a threat to middle class white morality, Mm -hmm. but was kind of accepted as a blemish on the character of working class women. Right. Who were already seen as somewhat suspect. So, you know, again, this is important to understand because Elsie Siegel did not fit those stereotypes. She's from a well-known, financially stable family. She wasn't a drug addict, nor was she a prostitute. So her choice to become romantically involved with not one, but at least two Chinese men, both fascinated and horrified the newspaper reading public. Captain Michael Galvin of the Chinatown area police station engaged in a, quote, crusade against the white women in Chinatown, end quote. By early July, Galvin told press he had forced at least 200 white women to leave Chinatown, and only six were allowed to remain because they had marriage licenses. This crackdown severely restricted the mobility of Chinese men and white women alike, drawing a kind of social border around Chinatown that was not to be crossed. This would help turn Chinatown into the kind of ethnic bachelor enclave that it never really was before all of this. And it really helped to harden the kind of social barriers around the area. So like you said, everybody had their neighborhood or whatever, but it was policies like these that actually made that more true than it had been beforehand. Right. Do you see what I mean? Yep. While uh, white women were being forced out of Chinatown, the NYPD was spearheading a manhunt for Leon Ling and his friend Chong Sing. Uh, you know what? Sorry. Let me back up. I said his friend Chong Sing because that's what the police, how the police describe him. Uh-huh. But I, I really, I want to read that again in a way that I think is more accurate. Uh-huh. The NYPD was spearheading a manhunt for Leon Ling and his roommate Chong Sing with assistance from police and citizens around the country and from major metropolitan newspapers like William Randolph Hearst's San Francisco Examiner to small town papers like the Binghamton Free Press and Leader. Hearst, of course, uh, was, along with Joseph Pulitzer, the inspiration for Citizen Kane. I don't know if you know that. Uh-uh. Um, have you ever seen Citizen Kane? Uh, I think a long time ago. Still widely considered one of, if not the best movie ever, ever made. Yeah. Anyway, the NYPD circulated a photograph and a description of Leon Ling that emphasized his good looks, his Americanized dress, his skilled use of English, his flashy clothes and jewelry, and the ease with which he traveled in and out of Chinatown. He's a smoother. Yes. In short, they described him much the same way they would have described any other dandy of the day. In a sense, this description created a further complication because far from being unable to assimilate into American society, which was the common refrain of xenophobic nativist reactionaries of the day, right? The Chinese couldn't, couldn't uh, assimilate. Leon Ling, also known as William L. Leon, showed that Chinese immigrants could assimilate actually too well. The result of all this was increased scrutiny and attacks on Americanized Chinese immigrants by police and citizens alike. Now, most of these people were students, diplomats, interpreters, ministers, and community leaders. Because remember, they were looking at Americanized Chinese immigrants. So the people that were attacked were the ones who had learned English the best, who dressed in American style, who had American haircuts, you know, American style haircuts and that sort of thing. So those were the ones who were attacked. And of course, those people were the most likely to be like the ones who had kind of middle class positions, right? Working for banks, working as diplomats and working for, you know, working in legal institutions and things like that. These were people who served important roles as intermediaries between the less assimilated Chinese and the kind of white social and legal institutions. Within days of discovering Siegel's body, uh, NYPD headquarters was flooded by Ling sightings by citizens and police around the country. Chinese men were arrested in different parts of the country, including Zheng Ling, a laundryman arrested riding a streetcar in New Jersey. 
Tianbo Lee, a student picked up in Middletown, New York. Let me guess. Huh? Let me guess. What? They all fit the description. The description of being Americanized Chinese men. Yes. Yeah, that was it. Uh, it, even Japanese men like Marshall Kobayashi, oh, sure. a lecturer in the in the Bronx, was falsely arrested as well. A Japanese butler from New Jersey was arrested when he was misidentified as Chong Singh. Was there a big reward out? No, people were just like fascinated and wanted to find him. You know, it was this nationwide manhunt. Concerned citizens sure. all, you know, <laughs> stepped up. But of course, like... Get this evil guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... The result of all this, of course, was that the daily lives of Chinese and Asian immigrants in general became just more precarious, and they were subjected to increased surveillance from both the state and citizen alike. In every city with a noticeable Chinese population, the impact was felt by white women of all socioeconomic backgrounds as well as Chinese residents. Americans investigated chop suey restaurants, Protestant missions, hand laundries, even people's homes. Around the country, bourgeois whites were alarmed by the ease with which white women and Chinese men co-mingled, and they sought to restrict those interactions. The Chicago Daily Tribune assured readers that their city's missions operated differently than New York's, promising, quote, in Chicago, the folly of allowing young and experienced women to attempt conversions among the Chinese men is committed rarely, if at all, end quote. Nonetheless, a Chinese Sunday school was closed immediately after a neighbor rallied complaints about it. In Pittsburgh, police superintendent McQuaid launched a crusade to shut down two Chinese, the two Chinese Sunday schools in town. He ordered a series of arrests, including that of a 17-year-old teacher named Sarah Crew. He announced that he would, quote, stop the evil by shadowing every female Sunday school teacher in the city, end quote. If a teacher was caught visiting a Chinese dive, the police would raid the place and arrest every single person there. Quote, the girls will be treated as common criminals until they learn that I mean to protect the womanhood of Pittsburgh against the inroads of the yellow peril in its vilest form, end quote. In essence, he treated white women socializing with Chinese men as a sexual deviance crime like prostitution. Bowing to the pressure, Reverend Warren Partridge, whose church ran one of the Sunday schools, stopped allowing women to teach Chinese students. Now, Chinese Americans did fight back. They mounted protests against increased surveillance and the increased police presence in a number of their cities and towns or cities and towns that they lived. Despite the fact that they were aliens in America and were ineligible for citizenship, their protests, petitions, and even lawsuits suggest that they had expectations that their safety and freedom should and would be safeguarded regardless of their lack of legal recognition. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. The restrictions on their mobility also created the idea of Chinatowns as places with sort of a fixed ethnic and racial border. But this story shows that, in fact, those lines had to be imposed in order to break up the mixed race, mixed ethnic working class neighborhoods into stereotypical Chinatowns that allegedly existed to preserve ethnic solidarity and homogeneity. These neighborhoods were forced into being in much the same way that Elsie Siegel's grisly murder which took place in Midtown, miles away from Chinatown, nonetheless became known as the Chinatown Trunk Mystery. Okay. <laughs> okay. The New York Evening Journal first referred to Elsie uh, Siegel's murder as, quote, the Chinatown Mystery, end quote. But it wasn't long before all the papers called it the Chinatown Trunk Mystery. Well, that's what happens right there. That's, that's usually what happens right there. Yep. Especially back in those days. Is one reporter, the first person will name yep. something, something. And then everybody runs with it. It be completely wrong. Or someone's name. Someone's name could be completely wrong. That's what it is. Next yep. thing you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Um, yep. You know, journalists repeatedly wrote about Chinatown, just like stories about Chinatown, because, of course, there was a demand for this. And they would warn about the dangers that lurked in Lower Manhattan's Sixth Ward. About two months after the murder, the editor of Cosmopolitan, right, that's Cosmo. Yep. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. The editor of Cosmopolitan wrote, quote, it is a shock to the law abiding people of this country to learn that in nearly all our great cities, there are settlements of Orientals who are with us, but not of us, who administer their own affairs according to their own conception of what is right and wrong. Sounds like my grandfather. Who never subscribe to or heed either our laws or our customs and even arrogate themselves the power of life and death 
over the people in the community, end quote. The article went on to point out how America was, quote, a mighty crucible that welded all the various European immigrants into United States culture, but that the Chinese just refused to mix. But of course, we've already seen that that's not true. You know what I mean? Like Leon Ling is the perfect example of how untrue that is. So it's sort of crazy anyway. Sure. All right. The same month, journalist William Brown Maloney offered, quote, a glimpse into the sordid underworld of Chinatown, where Elsie Siegel formed her fatal association, end quote. Maloney joined a slummin' party, and Captain Galvin uh, went with him as a police escort. And they went to Chinatown at night to explain the allure, uh, but also the dangers that awaited white women there. He utilized a very popular trope at the time of rural innocence corrupted by urban vice in order to tell the story of two, quote, fresh-faced country lasses, end quote. Oh, boy who were nearly ensnared in Chinatown. The women visited an opium den, and Maloney suggested that the ambient smoke got into their system and lowered their guard. Now, he says they didn't smoke anything, but just the smoke in the air was enough to lower the Contact, guard. contact buzz. They got a contact buzz. After leaving, quote, they talk loudly. They laugh without occasion. Uh-oh. They headed past a shop window displaying lingerie for sale. And the two women tried to bargain with the Chinese storekeeper, slipping into pidgin English, asking, quote, how muchy, end quote, they haggled and pointed unashamed at an article of feminine finery, end quote. The women left without purchase, but the entire scene deeply disturbed both Maloney and Galvin, who explained that the exchange could be the beginning of the women's descent into immorality. Galvin asked, quote, did you catch the pigeon English? I'll bet those girls were never in a Chinatown before tonight. End quote. I mean, it's absurd, right? Like they said, how muchy? I mean, it's hardly pigeon English. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's just like bad stereotyping, but like this cop and this journalist were like, Oh my God, listen, listen to how they've slipped into pigeon English. They're, they're so corrupted already by Chinatown. You know, and the fact and the fact that they looked at lingerie was so uh, scandalous uh-huh. to these men. Like how like, oh, my God, like it's unbelievable that they would look at this. And then they didn't <laughs> buy They didn't even buy it. Although I think about this and I'm like, you know, these women with these two men who are like mm-hmm. who are clutching their pearls. Right. This one cop and this journalist who are like, oh, my God, these women are looking at lingerie. I mean, like, <laughs> of course they didn't buy it. Like, I mean. <laughs> Could you imagine if they had? I mean, I, I can't even, you, you know what I mean? Like, they, it had to be the, just the most awkward thing for oh, them. Yeah. Like, because I'm sure they started trying to haggle. And then you look over and you notice these two, like, weirdo older men, like, watching you. <laughs> like, yeah, like, with their mouths just agape. <laughs> like, oh, my God, these women are looking at lingerie. You get that at Columbia. I mean, you can only imagine. Like, that happens at Columbia Mall. There, there you go. So as ridiculous as all that sounds. Their quick use of that racialized language was to the reader, you know, an indication of how quickly they could slip into an interracial relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I mean, I don't mean with a man per se, but like they were able to slip into this relationship with the Chinese shop owner, which was an interracial relationship through this ridiculous how much. <laughs> um, so, you know, for Maloney's readers, this was, of course, a grave warning to any respectable white woman. Yes. Which is hilarious. Um, I mean, the prudishness is just uh, uh-huh. unbelievable. Anyway, Maloney went on to meet several of the white women who were married to Chinese men in Chinatown. He told the story of one woman who, as it turns out, coincidentally, was also named Elsie, which I have to say, I'm a wee bit suspicious about. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Elsie, who had married Chu Wing, a wealthy Chinese laundry owner in St. Louis seven years earlier. Uh, who had then obviously moved to New York. Maloney emphasized her middle-class background and her fine education, uh, drawing these clear parallels with Elsie Siegel. At first, Maloney described her as content, but the story turned dark. She explained, quote, no chains, no barred doors hold us here, but there is a wall. You cannot see it. You cannot even imagine it, but it is there. I can see it. I have dashed myself against it and been hurled back. End quote. She continued that she only knew, quote, one white woman to ever get over that wall 
and back to our own kind, end quote. That woman escaped thanks to a newspaper man who persistently helped her. He persuaded her to leave so she could, quote, see real rainbows and green trees and grass, not just the ones she experienced in poppy land, end quote. <laughs> she left, and the newspaper man got her a job at the newspaper typing. But she never married. She never had a happy ending. Her white savior could redeem only so much. Hers and Elsie's stories were cautionary tales. Women who dared engage in sexual or racial transgressions would be permanently damaged by the experience. Obviously, Maloney implied it was best not to risk it. So I love this whole story, at least in part, because the one woman who escapes only escapes because of a brave newspaper man who helped her. I mean, the whole thing is so just like, I mean, I'm sorry, you have to be so suspicious of every part of this story. The one, the woman he's talking to, her name is Elsie. She seems happy, but then he like makes it turn dark into this like weird, right. vague thing where she's like, I throw myself against this invisible wall all the time. Yeah. I long to be with my own people. Very weird. Only one white woman has ever gotten out, and she was only she only got out because of a newspaper man. Very brave newspaper. Man. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. It's not true. But I am right. saying I'm suspicious. That's all I'm saying. Is that that nothing about that story <laughs> doesn't raise my suspicion. That's like every aspect of that. Yes. Is very suspicious. Anyway, uh, of all the dangers awaiting respectable white women in Chinatown, perhaps none seemed more dangerous to readers than opium. I like that. Journalists, travel writers, and hacks alike all described the distinct aromas of opium that they claimed was particular to all Chinese settlements. Social reformers of the day frequently relied on descriptions of concentrated smells as a kind of shorthand for disease and degeneracy, right? After all, the densely populated working-class tenement buildings would have been, shall we say, an olfactory experience, right? <laughs> I mean, when you've got like 14 people yeah. living in a, in a one-bedroom place, uh, yeah, it would stink. Like, Pretty the places much. would stink to high heaven, like, no question. You know, I don't know how much you know about, about the way that, like, immigrant tenements work back then, but a lot of, like, especially, like, Italians and uh, Eastern Southern Europeans in particular – they would actually, a lot of them would rent, um, and they would rent a space for like 10 hours. So uh, you would basically just have a yeah. place that you lived long enough to sleep and then you'd go back to work. So you would have, so like the same house, same, like the same bed would house, you know, you'd have yep. two different workers that sort of worked on a 10 hour or a 12 hour shift, you know, so you might have like 14 people sleeping in one tenement room. Yep. Yep. And then 10, 12 hours later, it'd be a different 14 people in the same, you know what I mean? Like, so those you like you know those places smelled. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They smelled to high hell. They smelled to high yeah, heaven. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and like through no fault of anybody's, like how could they not? Yep. Anyway, so a lot of writers, journalists, and whatnot at the time, of course, like they would kind of describe uh, concentrated smells as you know, again, as a shorthand, shorthand for disease or degeneracy. The other thing to remember is that like these tenement houses and things like that. They were breeding grounds for disease. So, oh yeah, you know, I mean, again, how could they not be? Yeah. So, a lot of the association with like immigrants as like dirty and disease comes from it's like a true stereotype. It wasn't that they were dirty and disease, it, but but based on the reality that like they were dirty. What choice did they have? They were definitely the disease. Yeah. But to live in these, right? They were dirty and disease, right? Like they were. But it hadn't. It wasn't because of their culture no. or some sort of like God social no. inferiority. It was just like the, the conditions were so grim. Like, of course they were. They were forced to live like rats. Exactly. Right. Precisely. Precisely. Uh, the other thing I want to say is just like historically, um, you know, by 1909, germ theory existed. It, it kind of became the dominant theory by like 1920, but most people accepted some degree of germ theory by 1909. Uh, certainly in the professional classes, but among like regular people a lot of old folkways would persist you know they, those things persist even till today sometimes and uh for years before germ theory uh people believed that like uh, smells bad smells cause diseases mm -hmm. so again so there's like there is a kind of long-standing old folkway about stinky things and disease so mm -hmm. you know that makes a lot of sense like um have you ever seen those um plague masks from uh from the black death uh I don't know. 
you ever see like uh if you the google like plague doctor like they wear these masks that look like they're they look like birds they look like they're wearing a bird mask or something but the reality was they weren't trying to look like birds they have these long bird-like noses because people thought that they that smells were what caused diseases they used to pack those things full of flowers uh, like dried flowers and other herbs that would smell good in order to filter out the bad smells so plague masks it's funny because in some ways they kind of worked because like um the disease particles had to like filter through all this crap before it could get to your nose so a lot of plague doctors survived the black death but you know they then attributed that to like because they had blocked the bad smells but of course the reality was they just like packed these long these facial masks full of stuff that the disease particles got sort of clung to on their way in so they didn't really inhale them yeah um Anyway, plague stuff is is fascinating. Um, you know about do you know about Ring Around the Rosie? Pocket full of Rosie. That's all I know about it. That's a uh, that's a Black Death uh, song. Uh, I, yeah, I was in a movie I think one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ring Around the Rosie is what uh, what the bubonic plague looks like. You get a a little red spot with a uh, a ring that appears around your skin. Ooh. So you get a red spot and then a ring around it. So you get a ring around the rosy. And then pocket full of posy because posies smell good and bad smells cause disease. So pocket full of posy, ashes, ashes, because you had to burn all the bodies or else the disease would spread. We all fall down because, you know, 25% of uh, Europe died. Dead. Yeah. So, you know, everybody taught their kids, uh, you know, ring around the rosy, which is basically a story about how everybody's going to die if the Black Death shows up. That's crazy. Pretty grim stuff. And yeah, and it, but like, but again, my point being, these old folk folkways, they linger in our culture, in our sort of collective consciousness in some way. You know, like we keep these things, they change, the meaning changes over time, but like we keep doing these things over and over. So again, this idea of like stinky smells and disease, it makes a lot of sense because this is what people thought for a thousand years. Like you're not going to just like get rid of that because all of a sudden you realize germs exist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like people will accept the germ theory. But they're not going to just like abandon this. Uh, like these connections are just too deep. They're they're still going to sing "Ring Around the Rosie," "Pocket Full of Posy," and some people will probably still carry pockets full of flowers because they have some sort of superstition about it that comes from you know what I mean. Like again, it's like a family you know family tradition passed on generation to generation sure. to generation. You know Absolutely. that sort of thing. Absolutely. Anyway, so in the congested city, you know, outbreaks of cholera and tuberculosis, especially, were a constant worry because once they began. Uh, the diseases would sort of pour out of the slums and into the more general population, and they just wash over swaths of a city, drowning the people in death and misery. And middle-class reformers viewed opium smoking much the same way. For them, the smoke that kind of leaked out of the opium dens threatened to kind of winnow its way through the respectable middle class and, quote, stimulate the curiosity of that large class of people who are ever on the lookout for a new sensation, end quote. Now, opium was widely available in all manner of forms, right? An 1884 account explained that opium could, quote, be smoked, eaten, drank, and even injected into the circulation, end quote. But it went on to explain that of all of those methods, smoking opium was the most, quote, debased and wretched practice, end quote. So, Smoking opium was viewed as worse than IV use. Just let that sink in for a minute. (laughs) This was undoubtedly because this was how the Chinese primarily used it. So it was this association with the Chinese that made it the most debased and wretched practice. Because obviously, banging opium into your veins is clearly more debased and wretched than smoking it. Like, I mean, there's no question, right? But like, but that's not how they viewed it then. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but Jacob Rees was the reformer who wrote the book, How the Other Half Lives. I heard of that. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty famous book. It was about the the dangerous kind of substandard tenements uh, and immigrant life in New York. Well, he wrote, Chinaman smokes opium as the Caucasian smoked tobacco and apparently with little worse effect upon himself. But woe unto the white victim upon which this pitiless drug gets its grip, end quote. There was this belief that opium didn't affect Chinese people in any negative way. Like it was basically like smoking cigarettes, also wildly untrue. But the greatest concern was white women smoking opium because reformers worried if they became addicts, 
they would choose to live in Chinatown as common law wives of Chinese men. So opium was intimately linked to the Chinese in the minds of middle-class whites. And this is a kind of perfect example of what a cultural critic, this guy Edward Said, called Orientalism, which is a kind of framing of Asian stereotypes by Western colonial powers, but framing them for a Western colonial audience. In other words, it's an invention of imperialism meant for imperialists to kind of reinforce to reinforce a kind of imagined inferiority. And I know it's a little heady for what we normally do, but I just want to bring that up because uh, I don't want to go any deeper into theory, but um, although Saeed is worth reading, but I want to bring it up because uh, the origins of opium in China are kind of interesting. And I want to mention them briefly here. So the British had established a triangle trade with China by the early 19th century. Um, and what they did was they brought cotton from India to trade in China for tea and silk and porcelain, which they then took back to Britain and sold, you know, to, to the British public. And then they would bring British goods to China to sell them. And that was the third part of the triangle, right? For years, though, the trade really favored China as Chinese consumers didn't really want British goods. So the British had to always make up the shortfall with silver, right? They couldn't just trade goods to make enough money to buy the silks and porcelain and tea that they knew was going to sell back home. So then after a while, they decided rather than cotton, they would concentrate on opium. And so they turned the Bengal region of India into an opium producing powerhouse. Basically, they they turned it into a monopoly. Sure. Opium, which had not really existed in China, uh, shifted the trade imbalance to favor Britain. And so the silver started to flow from China to Britain, you know, in order to make up this trade imbalance. By flooding the market with opium, recreational use became a real problem for the Qing dynasty. Now, in 1813, the Qing dynasty decided to ban opium imports and opium, the opium trade. The British turned to a combination of American and British smugglers operating out of Hong Kong and nearby Macau in order to keep pushing opium into China, often in exchange for uh, coolie laborers, for these indentured servants. The social problems of rampant addiction in China grew, and two schools of thought within the Chinese government emerged about how to deal with the problem. One was a pragmatic approach that would punish users. It would legalize opium, tax it highly so it would be unaffordable. The other approach was a moral approach. This approach would punish the drug dealers, the pushers. In 1839, the Qing opted to implement this moral approach, and they sent agents to Canton, Canton, Maryland. <laughs> I love it. Sent agents to Canton, which is uh, today known as Wangzhou. Wangzhou. Yeah, Wangzhou, which is a huge industrial city. Um, and if you looked at a map, Wangzhou is pretty, is a, it's like a port city, although it's off the port a bit, off the coast a bit, but it is like, it's a port city, basically. Um, and Wangzhou was where the British, British were allowed to trade in Wangzhou. That was their one port. Remember I told you mm -hmm. that Europeans had sort of carved up much of Chinese ports for trade. Well, Wangzhou was the British port. Okay. So the Chinese, while, uh, sending agents to go ahead and try and like end the like to punish pushers they also wrote to queen victoria uh -oh. and they chastised the british for being drug pushers they chastised uh -oh. queen victoria for pushing drugs into their country now chinese authorities arrested some 1600 drug dealers they destroyed tens of thousands of opium pipes and they eventually seized 2.6 million pounds of opium from british ships the lost profits from the opium trade prompted the british to launch the first opium war. They attacked the Chinese. The British Navy was unquestionably the most powerful in the world. They destroyed the Chinese. And the war ended when the Chinese were forced at gunpoint to sign a treaty that basically allowed the British to trade opium at will in five new ports plus Guangzhou. The death of the emperor a few years later, about 20 years later, brought on the second opium war uh, because after he died, uh, new, a new generation of reformers tried to end the, the opium trade. So the British attacked them again, resulting in an even worse treaty for, uh, for China, which allowed the British even more free reign to sell opium mm -hmm. into the country. All right. So now we're talking about the 1870s. We're getting close to our story now, right? So you ask, why are all these Chinese immigrating 
Well, because two wars of the British to push opium into their country have Correct. devastated the, the country. They've de- devastated the, the political system, right? Um, by the end of the 19th century, China, however, uh, had started producing enough domestic opium that they had become an exporter of opium, and the British trade declined anyway. All of this, by the way, while opium was illegal in Great Britain, the British did all this while it wasn't even a, it wasn't even legal in their own country. That means somebody was making a fortune. Yeah, but it also means that they're colossal pieces of shit. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm sorry, but just like unquestionably, when you're like, "Hey, these things are illegal in our country, but we're gonna we're gonna like sell them, push them on your country," is <laughs> just beyond. It's just beyond the pale, shitty. Anyway, um, and yeah, people did make a lot of money, no question. My point of all of this is to say that opium's association with the Chinese was itself the result of violence and coercion by a colonial power. And then after it was co- like coercively forced upon the Chinese, it then became a stereotype of Chinese behavior that was then used to denigrate their status and basically see them as somehow barbaric or less civilized, which is like, it's like insult to injury. You know, it's the whole like salt in the wound. Um, we're going to force you to do this drug, get you addicted so we can sell more of it. And then we're going to like talk about how inferior you are because you're addicted to this drug that we've essentially forced on your people. You know what I mean? There's an important lesson in this to this day. Like the Chinese learn about the opium wars and they learn a very important lesson from all this. And that is not to ever be weak when dealing with the West. It's kind of an important thing to understand. Even when you're talking about like modern diplomacy, you're like the Chinese learned this lesson. They know what it's like to deal with the West when they were weak, that they see what happened. Mm-hmm. Western powers have no moral compunction about pushing even the most addictive drug onto the people if it means making money. You know what I mean? Like they learned an important lesson about that. Anyway, I mean, I think this has all been pretty interesting so far. I hope you like it. Sure, so. sure. Yeah, yeah. But we'll get more into the actual story. Like a lot of this is background stuff. Like we'll get more into the story in the second half because that's how I like to tell these things. You know, I like to like to set up all the context, build up all that. I like it. I like to build up the architecture and then, you know, I like it. It's all scaffold. We're building scaffolding. Scaffolding. I like it. I'm I'm bougie right now. I got the dogs under my legs. I got two pillars (laughs) behind my back. Headphones on. Who's better than me, baby? Ella's, uh, Ella's been sleeping in my spot in the bed all week while I've been, uh, in the other room. And, uh, she was like, can I sleep in your room one more night? I was like, yeah, I guess I can sleep in the spare room one more night, <laughs> which actually probably works out. Cause I'm in here and you know, it's been uh-huh. you know, whatever, but like still anyway. All right. So back to the story. So back to opium. We're still, you know, talk about some, do some drug talk. So all this opium talk, man. I want to get some opium. <laughs> I know, I know. All right. So uh so opium was used in a wide range of medicines and tonics prescribed for everything from like GI troubles to food poisoning, anxiety, parasites, coughing and pain. When the government first teased the possibility, the American government first teased the possibility of limiting opium's availability, they were met with fierce resistance from the newly established American Medical Association and American <laughs> Pharmacological Associations who were like, you absolutely cannot take opium away from us. <laughs> so, so in 1909, the same year of our story, mind you, Congress instead banned the importation of opium for smoking, only opium for smoking. The bill passed easily because it was viewed as having only having a negative financial impact on the already disenfranchised Chinese community who aren't going to be voting them out, right? So they didn't worry about it. And they figured it wouldn't hurt the the patent medicine manufacturers, the doctors, the pharmacists, and all that. And of course, it didn't hurt any of them. But it did create a kind of hierarchy of usage where smoking opium was seen as criminal, debased, and immoral, while using bears, you know, bear as in bear aspirin, bears brand uh, heroin cough medicine, or taking nips from a laudanum bottle, those were respectable. (laughs) The hierarchy was strengthened in middle-class minds by reformers like Jacob Reese, who took photos of female Chinese opium addicts fully dressed in traditional silks next to 
beautiful ornate tea sets in elaborately decorated rooms. And basically he framed them as attractive and exotic, these female uh, opium addicts, Chinese opium addicts. By contrast, white women who, quote, smoked joints or hit the pipe, end quote, were photographed in squalid rooms with Chinese men with beds in the frame of the photo to imply sexual deviance. White bourgeois readers could imagine opium smoking as both a condemnation of character and a kind of quaint, if backwards, tradition, you know, uh, depending on who the user was. So I cannot stress enough how diverse Chinatown was when Elsie Siegel's body turned up, right? Um, so briefly, I, I you know took a look at the, the 1910 census schedules to provide a glimpse of the kind of people who lived in Chinatown. I think you're going to like this part. At 15 Mott Street, for example, the cultural center of Chinatown, one would find five Chinese households and nine Italian households living in the same building. Mm -hmm. Next door at 13 Mott Street, the names of the residents read as follows. Li, Wong, Chin, Barocco, Titula, Molassi, Bernieri, Sprovani, (laughs) Capolini, Pieri, Perello, Perelli, and Baron. How'd I do? I love it. Reminds me of a good old joke I used to hear. But I mean, again, these are people living in Chinatown. I mean, like the point, yeah. Over at 15 Doyer Street, just a couple buildings down from the Chinese theater at five through seven Doyer Streets, Chun Wing uh, lived with his wife, Marie Fernando, who was uh, Spanish of like Cuban of Spanish descent. Also living there were Charles Welch, Wa Kwong, Won Lim, Keelin, and Wu Fong. Another mixed race couple, Ung and Sadie Chu, lived in the building, and so did Ambrose and Margaret Reynolds, and their boarders, William and Bertha Clayton, and their son. Additionally, at Three Doyers, you could go to Wing Sing's restaurant, which was staffed entirely by Chinese workers, but the menu was all American cuisine, the, the kind of cuisine you could find, according to a contemporary guidebook, quote, in any ordinary restaurant, end quote. I love that they say ordinary restaurant. Like, it is an ordinary restaurant, you jackass. <laughs> I mean, like, what's not ordinary about it? There, it's, a, it's an American restaurant, but it is entirely staffed by Chinese cooks and owned by a Chinese owner. They served at that restaurant such favorites as ham and eggs and turkey dinners. There were two other Chinese-owned restaurants on Pell Street that served American food, catering to a non-Chinese clientele. And all three restaurants seem to have done a pretty decent business. So in other words, there was a market for three restaurants in Chinatown that served just American cuisine. Chinatown was hardly a self-contained geographic space where the residents refused to assimilate, or as Cosmopolitan put it, quote, Orientals who are with us, but not of us, who never subscribe to or heed either our laws or our customs, end quote. The opposite seems to have been true. These ideas had to be invented and then sold to the reading public through, you know, newspapers and magazines. Nevertheless, after the Siegel murder, people like Captain Galvin hoped to accomplish a goal that they had actually had since well before it happened. And that is getting rid of Chinatown altogether. You'll remember that Galvin was the one who bragged about getting all but six white women out of uh, Chinatown within a few weeks of Siegel's murder. Well, by July 5th, it was down to three, according to Galvin all of whom had marriage licenses, but he threatened those three as well, saying, quote, if you haven't packed up and got out of here, I'll send you to the island, end quote. I have no idea what island that is. Rikers, I'm not sure. Oh, God. I don't know. He hoped that, quote, shutting up the Fontan restaurant uh, resorts and the dispersion of white women from Chinatown might result in breaking up the entire Chinese community there because it did away with the chief attraction, end quote. By the end of July, Chinese merchants were reporting that the num- that the murder investigation and the constant harassment by the police on so-called uh, anti-vice crusades had wrecked the economy. Quote, many stores have closed and the proprietors have moved away during the last six weeks. As compared with other vacation periods, very few persons have visited the district this summer. End quote. Despite Galvin's claims and efforts, by October that year, settlement house workers were reporting, quote, Many of the girls are still living in hiding in Chinatown, end quote. In fact, the growing commercialization of Chinatown had created problems for police and reformers trying to maintain 
the gender and kind of racial borders there. There were simply too many places frequented by working class men and women, both from Chinatown and nearby neighborhoods like the Bowery and Five Points. Police conducted raids periodically, but private extra-legal groups took on increasingly prominent roles in the crackdown. One anti-vice group, the Committee of 14, which I have to tell you as I was doing the research on this, was very complicated because there's a committee of 15 and a committee of 14, and they're completely different groups with completely different memberships. And I kept getting the two confused while I was like oh, trying to write this. Finally, I decided not to say anything about the committee of 15. Good. It was just like, no, I'm just doing one. Good. One, if you can't, if you can't think of a good name, all you can think <laughs> of is calling yourself the committee of 14. Screw you. <laughs> so one anti vice group, the committee of 14, operated independent from the police, and they employed their own investigators and their own enforcers. They specifically uh, were looking to eliminate prostitution, and they did so by targeting saloons and bars that also had sleeping quarters, which were known as Rain's Law Hotels. The Rain's Law in New York banned the sale of alcohol on Sundays in all businesses except for hotels that served guests. To skirt the law, a number of saloons, bars, and taverns quickly built small sleeping quarters in their properties that were available to let, making them hotels allowed to serve alcohol on Sundays, which is genius. Come on. Now that is, Mm -hmm. come on, give it up. That is the kind of innovation that you are supposed to celebrate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, we need to serve guests. No problem. I'm putting in two beds in the back. (laughs) Now, now I'm a hotel, you know, as long as I rent those two beds, as long as I rent those two beds out, I'm a hotel. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can serve alcohol on Sundays to all my guests. Yep. All of them who are just visiting the two people staying in those back two rooms. That's right. Let me briefly mention just how insane it is to have Sunday like blue laws, to have alcohol laws, mm-hmm. and also at the same time have an area called Chinatown that has to abide by those laws. I mean, like, so the laws are rooted in this idea that you can't serve alcohol on Sunday so that every all these good Christians can go to church, which of course makes them unconstitutional because it violates the whole separation of church and state, but nonetheless. In all places, Chinatown, like a place that is stereotypically full of Chinese immigrants who are by definition not Christian, to like force them to follow a law about like making everybody go to church on Sundays is so bonkers. I can't even like wrap my brain around it. Sure. Anyway, it just, it, you would think like at least with Chinatown, people would be like, well, this doesn't really make much sense there. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it might make sense in like a lot of other communities if that's how you're whatever, but like it sure doesn't make sense in like <laughs> the one community that is like by your own stereotypes unchristian. Right. Yeah. Anyway, the committee of 14 investigated to determine which establishments were operating as Rain's Law hotels. And then they pressured liquor distributors not to deliver to those locations. That's where the enforcers come in. This threat, actually, of losing your your access to liquor got most of the establishments to end prostitution in their establishments, which, like, some of the the establishments were running prostitution. Some of them just sort of turned a blind eye to prostitutes who might come in, you know, because it's a bar, and that's how Mm. prostitution works. Yep. After the success of this, the Committee of 14 trained their sights on Lee Chung's establishment at 41 Mott Street. Now, Chung's establishment was not a Reigns Law Hotel, but the committee was extremely concerned about his place because, you see, Lee Chung allowed dancing on the premises. Dance halls were very popular, a very popular form of commercialized leisure for working-class women, and Lee Chung's establishment attracted both male and female clientele, both white and Chinese. Now, initially, the Committee of 14 sent an investigator named Stockdale to case the place. He arrived at 1.23 a.m. and observed for half an hour. So, you know, he didn't come early. He came, like, in the the, the heat of the night, right? Like, 1.30 in the morning, he watched for half an hour, and then he left. He reported back to the executive secretary, a guy named Walter Hook, that Chung's was, quote, a clean-looking place. The occupants were a different class, being neater, dressed, and orderly, end quote. For Stockdale, there was no evidence of or any insinuation that prostitution was occurring at Lee Chung's establishment. However, a different report about Lee Chung's also ended up in the Committee of 14's hands. Uh, This anonymous report instead claimed that Lee Chung's was, quote, the hangout for crooks of the Italian type. Beautiful. Gorillas, 
vags, procurers, and young dissolute women, end quote. By September, the committee decided to target Lee Chung's. They contacted Joseph Dolger's sons, the lager beer brewer uh, and supplier for Lee Chung, and they convinced them to withhold beer from the establishment. Faced with the threat of losing access to beer, Lee Chung capitulated and signed an agreement that all women would be prohibited and that all music and all dancing would cease. They basically turned his place into just a shithole. Like, it used to be fun with women and men, music, dancing, mm-hmm. and he had to promise, I won't allow any women or music or dancing. And then the dad from Footloose came in and said, that's it. It's over. The Committee of 14 gathered pledges from other similar businesses in Chinatown under the same threats. Chinatown became the target uh, destination for middle-class thrill-seekers who wanted to see the dangers close up. Seeing New York automobiles, there was a kind of a, a market called Seeing New York automobiles, like seeing New York in quotes, became a thriving business as people could zip into and out of Chinatown with little hassle. When a group of beauty pageant winners from Pennsylvania visited New York on their way to Bermuda, they expressed their desire to go to Chinatown due to, quote, their interest having been aroused by the Elsie Siegel case, end quote. They were strongly discouraged by the police to stay away. The police were quite alarmed by this trend of people going to Chinatown, uh, especially as they worked to essentially wall Chinatown off as a racially homogenous bachelor area. So police increasingly targeted other businesses for crackdown, specifically tourist trap fraudulent opium joint establishments. These were places that essentially staged a seedy scene for tourists who were none the wiser. Tourists would pay a fee to go into a back room where they could see white women pressing opium pills, usually with some like decrepit old Chinese man. And so, they, you know, basically it was like a peep show. <laughs> it was all, it was all staged, but like police target these places and shut them down. <laughs> they also target chop suey restaurants mm-hmm. where single working class women frequently ate in the same room as Chinese men. I mean, that's what a restaurant is, right? I mean, this is not like mm-hmm. there's no, nothing insidious here, but the police would harass owners, pressuring them to ban women, uh, ban white women, sorry, or at least discourage women from coming in to eat. Police saw restaurants as a grave threat because they allowed gender mixing, but also because they, quote, threatened to lure more innocent female sightseers to become regular inhabitants of these places, like, which is weird. Like, oh, yeah, it's they threatened to bring these white women in because they might like the food (laughs) and that would be very dangerous. Anyway, police enforced a curfew at midnight and they forcibly removed any Chinese non-Chinese on the streets after that time. They even threatened the car companies who eventually bowed to police pressure and stopped doing tours after midnight. Police patrolled the streets and noted any addresses where they saw white women and Chinese men residing together. They turned in the addresses to tenement house inspectors for possible violations of sections 150 through 156 of the tenement house law, which dealt with prostitution. So anytime they saw a white woman and a Chinese man like going into a house, they would like report them for prostitution. Like doesn't matter if they're married, the law uh, allowed inspectors to punish not only suspected prostitutes, but also allowed civil action against the tenement owners as well. Regardless of the intent of the law, the effect was to harass and target mixed race couples with constant surveillance, uh, arrests, accusations. And oftentimes they were there were forced evictions because tenement owners didn't want the hassle. Right. The campaign absolutely devastated Chinatown's economy. All because Elsa Siegel's body was discovered in a trunk six miles away in Midtown. Like, that's the craziest part of all this is that she was discovered six miles away in Midtown, not Chinatown. Mm. And Mike, that's where we'll leave it for tonight. Uh, wanted to get to a nice stopping place. And that's a pretty good one. I think that was um, perfect. That is, you know, this is the, the police, uh, are, are, I mean, I thought you'd be sympathetic to this story because I know you're a uh, you're a small business like conscious guy. You think all the time. You're like, yeah, but the poor small business owner, all these poor small business owners, <laughs> getting harassed, getting shut down. Yes, you know. Yes. I mean, just because they want to have dancing and music in their bar. That's right. I know. You know. I hate it. I hate that. I hate that. Uh, just being being harassed just because they're Chinese. Man, it's uh like like today you can't go get a decent massage these poor those poor chinese places are getting all shut down you know for nothing just for what 
for doing a little lingam massage, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that is very much uh, in the in the vein of like, uh, you know, um, who was it? I think it was George Carlin who's like, selling's legal, fucking's legal. Why isn't selling fucking legal? <laughs> I love it. You All know. right, on that note, I have got to hit the hay. All right. All right, buddy. All right, man. Good night. I'll, I'll catch you. Good night. All right. Sam. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can email us at unbalancedviews at gmail.com or tweet at us at viewsunbalanced. Hope you come back for part three of the great Chinatown murder mystery. Tell a friend if you like what we're doing.